Ephesians 5. Again, this is a pretty straightforward passage. We've looked at it before. Um, now, your reading today is Ephesians 4, and tomorrow's Ephesians 5, and, and Friday is Ephesians 6. So we'll look at Ephesians, part of Ephesians 6 Sunday evening, Lord willing. But what I thought, well, what I wanted to do was Ephesians 5 is best known for what it says about marriage, um, particularly husbands and wives. And um, I'm convinced you can't really understand what Paul says there without understanding what he says in the first 21 verses. So in verse 22, your translation will say something like, Wives, submit to your husbands or be subject to your husband as to the Lord. And then it will go down, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we get really caught up, particularly with what Paul says to wives. Wives, submit to your husbands or wives, uh, be subject to, to your husbands. Um, and we do so without the previous context. What Paul demands of husbands and wives um, is, is an application of what he exhorts all Christians in the first 21 verses. So, so you can't get the uh, household codes, which bleeds into chapter 6, um, without first appreciating what it is that, that he does here. So um, let's read the first 21 verses, and then we'll just slice and dice and, and go as, 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 as we can. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand that what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay? So clearly what you have in Ephesians is really what Paul does in a lot of his other letters, and that is, and that is it starts um, really heavy on the theology, and then he gets very practical so you may remember when we went through Romans, the first 11 chapters are very deep, theologically driven. Chapters 12 to 16 are more practical. Uh, Colossians, chapters 1 and 2, deeply theological. Chapters 3 and 4, practical. Ephesians it follows very much the same thing. Read the opening chapters, and Paul's going to lay out a theological treatise, and then he's going to uh, show what this looks practically. And that's part of the reason why chapter 5, verse 1, begins with the word, therefore. Paul's been emphasizing uh, what the gospel is, our identity in the gospel, and how it, how it creates a new man and a new community. Um, therefore, he says, this is how you, you, you should live. 
and so this kicks off, for the most part, it kicks off the, the more practical section of Ephesians. Verse 1 is the idea of what Paul has to say practically in the book. And there it is, therefore, be imitators of God. In a nutshell, that's what we're called to be. All right, we're done. Let's go home, have fried chicken or whatever it is you do on a Wednesday night, right? Uh, it's, it's really, in, in a nutshell, in a single sentence, uh, everything else Paul has to say uh, in this epistle. At the end of the day, he is calling us to be imitators of God. Now, here's the question that, that popped off the page for me when I was looking at this text. And that is, how does one imitate someone you have never seen? For example, let's say you got a little boy, grandson, whatever. You want to teach him basketball. And you say, look, what I want you to do is play basketball like Pistol Pete. What are the chances a little kid, teenager, whatever, has even heard of the name Pistol Pete? Right? Now, if you said Stephen Curry or LeBron James or someone like that, they may have an idea what it is that you're, you're looking for. Maybe, maybe, you know, we've mentioned Stephen Curry, how, how good of a shooter he is. LeBron James, uh, how, how good he is at flopping, whatever it might be. Um, you, 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 right, you can, you, they have an idea because they've seen this player before. But if it's a player they've never seen or watched, then how can they imitate that player? So too, how is it that we are called to imitate God being that God is spirit and is unseen, right? That, that just jumped off the page for me. It's just a, a thought that I had. Of course, there is an answer to that question. The answer is, in the Christian view, is that we have seen God. God has come down in the second person of the Trinity. In fact, this is what Jesus tells um, uh, the disciples in John 14, right? Remember when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Well, in verse 8, Philip says... Um, well, how are we going to know the way, right? You know, that's the sort of thing. And he says, uh, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. You remember what Jesus said? Yeah, yeah. You, Padal, right? <laughs> Boom, you've seen him, okay? Yeah, that, that's, that's the thing. Christ is God revealed in flesh. Right? And you could read Hebrews 1. It says essentially the same thing in other passages, uh, that Christ is God revealed. So when Paul says that we are called to imitate God, the, the picture we should have in mind here is not some disembodied spirit who's Lord over the universe, which he is, but really the embodied Christ incarnated who is the embodiment of God himself. So in essence, the, the Christian journey is to imitate Jesus, to live like Jesus, look like Jesus, speak like Jesus, act like Jesus. And do the works of Jesus. So there it is. This is, this is the, the idea of the entire passage. Be imitators of God as his beloved children. Of course, the, the, the picture he has in there is a really uh, beautiful picture, isn't it? Um, when when uh, the kids were young and more impressionable, you could get them to do, to do and say anything, right? It's one of the things that's fun about toddlers. So, um, like our kids, I mean, they're Louisville fans now because we've raised them right. But when, when they were little, they would say, go Cards, go Peyton Siva. Not having an idea what in the world that they're saying, right? And so if I wore my Louisville clothes because it was a Louisville football game on, well, they're going to go get their Louisville clothes because it's a Louisville football game on, right? We've got pictures of, of us in all of our Louisville garb about to watch the Cardinals play, you know? Why? why? Because that is natural for children to do. Children imitate that which they have experienced, which should scare you to death. 
For example, uh, studies have shown that children who grow up in chaotic homes, you know where homes where there's a lot of screaming, there's a lot of people in and out, there's, there's, there's chaos everywhere you go and drama. When they enter into a relationship or a marriage, they think that is normal, but it's not. And so let's say they, they, they find this, 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 their spouse attractive because they save them from a lot of that, right? But in that marriage, what they think is this is the way it should be. Look, every marriage goes through something like that at some point. Sometimes it's over goofy things. I, I, the example I always give uh, that's pretty meaningless is one of the first meals man and I had was um, she cooked it. And then she, that's, you, see, you see, that's sovereignty of God right there, Don. But she, she, she cooked a meal. And I've told you this before, and it's a goofy example. She, she left the food on the stove. And that bothered me. Right, because growing up, the food went on the table. I'm not going to burn calories to get seconds, <laughs> right? You know, it, it, it's it, and it was easier for mom to say, "Who wants the last bit of mashed potatoes?" I'm not going to put in Tupperware, right? Well, I'll be the hero, mom, right? You just go ahead and, and, and do it. Um, well, that was a weird thing. What I thought was my childhood was normal. You then have to come together and figure out a new normal, which then means your kids think their childhood is normal, and we don't have the heart to tell them. But what we are called to do is to be imitators of God as beloved children. Uh, he loves us. We love him. So we seek to be more like him. That's the idea. Be imitators of God, followed by the command. So, so what does it look like to imitate God? It's in verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, so, so there it is. The exhortation is be imitators of God. What does that look like? You should love. None of this should be new to us, right? I mean, this is, this is as basic Christianity as, as you're ever going to get. But I want you to know how Paul defines love. You've heard me say this before, especially over the last seven years, is that love is not subjectively defined. That, that love is an emotion, it's a feeling, therefore love becomes fickle. Love isn't... Um, um, that, that sort of thing. Rather, love in the Bible is defined by God, which is why love is such an elevated uh, value in the Bible. So when we are told to love one another, it doesn't mean like one another. It doesn't mean just, just get along with each other. Rather, it's deeper than that. You know, function long enough to get through the service on a Sunday morning with one another. It's a deeper meaning. It's defined by God. And notice that we have in Christ, who, who is God in flesh, the very meaning of love. I've, I've shown you this. Sorry to keep saying that. I've shown you before that in the New Testament, the word love is almost always either written in the past tense, loved, or is written in the present tense with a past qualifier. So, for example, here it says, walk in love, present tense. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an imperative command with a continuing implication. You're going to love forever. Keep loving one another. That's the idea of the command there. But you'll notice it's defined by a past event. Walk in love as Christ loved you. Now, you could read that and say, well, Jesus used to love you, right? <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, th there was a time, 
when I loved wrestling, right? You know, <laughs> you know once, once uh, Hulk Hogan was gone, it just wasn't the same, right? The Rock helped a little bit, I'll admit. But, uh, you know, I used to love wrestling, so I loved it, you know. I don't keep up with it anymore, okay? You could judge me later. I loved baseball cards. Well, I still like baseball cards, but I don't even collect them. I ain't got time for that, right? Now, when, when uh, we've got some old baseball cards and the kids get them out, I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. But, but not a hobby like it used to be. Well, that's not what G, uh, Paul means here about Jesus used to love us. Rather is to say the command is to love. It's a blanket statement to walk in love as Christ loved us. And he tells us what he means by that. He points us to the cross. God proved his love present tense to us by dying on the cross in Christ for us. Yeah, Don. I don't think it's I noticed in my life that if somebody calls me and needs something, I drop what I'm doing and go do it. If your wife says I need you, she stops me. You defer to the other person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's putting someone, someone ahead of yourself, yeah. which is what Christ does. Yeah. Uh, so in the Bible, love is defined as self-sacrificial love of the servant's heart. It is to put someone else uh, above you at whatever cost, essentially. So, so when Jesus dies upon the cross, it wasn't because he was bored or found it enjoyable, nor was it because we were worthy of it. It's the opposite. This is why Christian love is radical love. And it should be expressed in radical ways. So Jesus died, Paul tells us, while we were yet sinners. He satisfied the wrath of God, though we don't deserve grace. We deserve the wrath of God. So, so we talked about that this past week with uh, the, the difficult story from 2 Samuel, that, that David let someone else suffer from someone else's sins. But here comes Christ who suffers for our sins. Uh, it's a very difference between the atonement offered uh, by the Gibeonites and the atonement offered by God. Um, and so that's, that's, that's how love is defined. If you want to see it um, exemplified, uh, th- this is all over the, the Bible. John 13, 34, uh, this is when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And you remember that scene, right, where um, the context tells us, if, if we put Luke in, that the disciples are arguing. Remember, they're teenage boys. They are arguing over... Uh, who is the greatest? Have you ever hung out with teenage boys for more than five minutes? This is the conversation they're going to have. Right? Uh, get me on the court. I'll show you how good I am. Right? I, mean, I, I, had a, I had a teenage kid. He's like 13, 14, 15 years old. Tell me he could be in the NBA right now. He's so good. Hey, you look like a sort of kid, no offense, who would have a hard time dribbling with your right hand, let alone your left hand, right? I, mean, I didn't tell him that, but I thought, I'm going to judge you right now. You couldn't make it, right? Good luck, son. But he really believed that about himself. That's the male ego is so beautifully awful at the same time. I mean, uh, I mean this kid, I mean, I've actually I had, a, had a grown man uh, in his young 20s saying, yeah, I haven't decided whether or not I really am going to pursue the NBA. I could make it if I wanted to. Like, you got dunked on in the YMCA, right? Pickup game. Don't talk to me about deserving to be in the NBA, son. I'm sorry. Um, but what are we talking about? Oh, yeah. So, so uh, Jesus here, while they're bragging about how awesome they are, um, Jesus notices something's missing. Everyone is so great, they're unwilling to do the simple things. Like wash one another's feet. Remember, this is a society where you, 
you walk in sandals, your feet get very dirty. Um, and so it was the job of the slave, the house slave, to do that. It's a very uh, demeaning uh, role to have. So the lowest of the low do this. And, and if there isn't a house slave to do that, then, then you work your way up you know, the ladder. A Jew was never to wash the feet of a Gentile. It's a very low, low sort of thing to do. So while they're arguing about who's the greatest, Jesus goes over and he actually takes off his, his like rabbi clothes, his robe and stuff, and he puts on the clothes of an oriental slave. He wraps the apron around him to, to, to dry each, each foot as he washes. So he takes the position of that of a slave. And that's why Peter freaks out. You know, don't, you can't touch this, he says in the Greek. And, and, and Jesus says, no, you, you don't understand. This, this is why I came. I came to wash your feet. Not just literally, but ultimately as a picture of the cross. So John 13, right after that happens, he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now, that's not a new commandment, is it? Unless you put it in the context of the cross. Because now it's more than just do this, it's do this like that. In fact, he says, a new commandment I give you, you love, present tense, one another, just as I have loved, past tense, you. You also are to love one another. This is typical of Johannine language, 2 John 1, 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning. We love one another. 1 John 2, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Sounds familiar? The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment I'm writing. So is it new or is it old? Right? Right? Which is true in him, that is Christ, and in you, because the darkness has passed away and the true light is already shining. Love one another. This is both an old commandment and is also a new commandment because the definition of love is... Christ, an objective truth. So, so that's the idea in the command. Imitate God by walking in love. That, that's, that's the whole idea. If you get that, everything that follows is common sense, especially when you come into the household codes. So let's then look at the warnings in verses 3 to 14. Okay, uh, This, is, again, is pretty typical. Verse 3 to 5 is uh, a fairly stereotypical viceless Paul loves vice and virtue list. This is bad, this is good. Right? We, we, we'll still do something like that. So uh, the list here, verse 3, sexual immorality. Also in verse 3, he then has a blanket, all immorality. Verse 3, covetousness. Uh, my ESV says covetousness, and then parentheses, that is an idolater. Is that what y'all says? I'm just curious. What, is, what did y'all say? An idolater? Okay. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Did you notice what Paul just told us there? He just gave you a theology of the Ten Commandments. Idolaters covet. People who covet are idolaters. Law 1, Law 10. Protestants have long argued that if you can keep perfectly the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, you'll keep the rest. Because a man who loves God with his entire being and worships no other God will not break the Sabbath. He will not commit murder. Right? Because if you love God, you'll love your neighbor. You won't steal. At the same time, if you don't covet anything, you have no reason to murder. Because you're not going to take life. You're not going to steal uh, his property. 
because you're not going to desire things that, that are illicit, nor will you desire a different God and put them on your mantle. So if you can keep the first, you'll keep the rest. If you keep the tenth, you'll keep the ones that preceded it. They're, they're bookend. Now, remember the Ten Commandments, the first four have to do with loving God and the last six have to do with loving neighbor. But, but they're bookended nonetheless. You keep one, you'll keep the other. If you truly love your neighbors, it's because you love God. If you love God, you end up loving your neighbor. Now, all those things are related. And Paul puts that right here. In this viceless person who is covetousness, by the way, that is someone who is an idolater. So someone who is driven by their passions, struggle with bitterness and envy, and think they're entitled to certain things. Every time they get on Facebook or Instagram, they become more depressed because everyone else seems to be living a better life than them. The root sin is idolatry. You're looking for heaven in a false god. You've created these functional hells, right? And, and, and so you've, you've created this, and you think, if only I had that thing, that job, that opportunity, that relationship, that amount of, 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 of wealth, or that power, or that respect, then I'll be happy. Then I'll have joy. Then I'll be content. That's not the way it works. So if you break the first, you'll break the last. You break the last, you've, you've broken the first. I find that insightful. Verse four, filthy talk, foolish talk, crude joking. So you'll notice he, there's three main categories here. Um, you have uh, immorality in general, um, which are uh, deeds of the flesh. And then you have uh, deeds of the heart. And then you have the deeds of the tongue. There's just three categories. Yeah, Don. Instead of uh, what foolish talk, filthy talk. It says, um, "Though some tongues just love the taste of gossip, those who follow Jesus have better uses of language than that. Don't talk dirty or silly. Uh, that kind of talk doesn't fit our style. Doesn't fit our style. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that sounds like the uh, the word on the street Bible. Have y'all ever seen the word on the street Bible? Um, if, you, if, if you're an insomniac, have nothing else to do, try to read a few verses from that. It's, more, it's, it's not a hip-hop one, but more of an urban sort of bio. It's, it's out there. Um, you know, I, my brother got me the Hawaiian Bible, the Jesus book, D-A, the Jesus book. And it, so that's like more, that goes before, far than I thought the message would go. But yeah, that's not our style. I agree with it. That's not, that's not how we roll, homie. Um, but... <laughs> Yeah, so, so um, um, moral actions uh, or actions of the flesh, action of the heart, and actions of, of the tongue. Um, but again, notice in, in verse 4, however, he has that vice list, but then he, he contrasts it. Um, let me find it. Instead of these vices of the tongue, let there be thanksgiving. Now just pause and really think about it. That's a really profound statement. It is hard to be bitter when you're thankful. It's hard to be covetousness if you are thankful. It's hard to be an adulterer if you are thankful. It's hard to be angry, bitter, whatever, any sort of vice you want to throw out there if you're thankful. Perhaps the, the answer that we need really as a country um, or just as individuals is to, to cultivate thanksgiving, to be genuinely thankful, genuinely thankful. Um, 
What a, what a profound statement, right? And it's so easy to miss, isn't it? So, uh, and then, so, so, so that's the vice list. But then what he does in verse 6 to 14, uh, so, so we're going we're gonna to have thankful hearts. Why? Because we're imitators of God. Christ has, has demonstrated his love for us, so we, we're called to love others. Not to get something from someone else, but to give all that we have to others, right? That's love. Uh, modeled by the blood of Jesus. 6 to 14, he warns them about um, um, uh, falling prey to, to false truths, right? So this is an exhortation to discernment. I don't want to spend a lot of time uh, on this. Um, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of dis- disobedience. That's language from chapter 2. Uh, do not become partners with them. Uh, for you were in darkness, but now you're in the light. That's, that's language borrowed from chapters 1 and 2, and you should have read that earlier this week, so I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But the idea is don't be deceived. So he's reminding you of, of the truth. You've come out of darkness into light. Um, you were sons of disobedience, now you're sons of obedience. You were, uh, wrath was stored up for you, now grace is stored up for you. So, so don't go back to where you were, but it's easy to be deceived into those sort of things. We'll talk about this some Sunday night uh, when we look at Ephesians 6. Uh, but it's, it's discernment. I love his quote in the end of verse 14. Anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. All right. so, so discern, right? That's the warning. Um, live a godly life and discern godly truth. So to walk in love, to be imitators of God, is to look different and to believe differently. That's the idea. So, so if you're going to be an imitator of God, you're going to love. What does that look like? Well, it's, it's not the viceless. It's you're, going to, you're going to be a thankful person. And also, you're, you're, you're not going to be a fool. You're not going to be easily uh, led astray because you're imitating God. And anything that doesn't look like God in Christ, you will stay far away from. Well, in the time that remains, and maybe we'll get out early, if, if you're okay with that. Um, uh, verses 15 to 21 is, is the unfolding of all this, right? He, he, is, he is really building up to this. Again, it's still just very, very practical. Um, verse 15 to 17 is the basic principle of, of the Christian life. Again, it's very basic stuff. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Now, Paul's there. What has Paul said about walking here? It's in verse 2. Walk in love. You see how it's all connected. All right. So, so you, you're going to walk in love, and then in between uh, verse 2 and verse 15, is he's, he's told you to uh, be thankful, right, as opposed to uh, having a, a crude mouth and, and, and whatnot. And he's also said that in, as you walk, you need to be careful how you walk and not be led astray. Um, and that's what he says in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So go back in that vice list. One, uh, some of those are foolish, some of those are wise. What, what is foolish? Uh, uh, sins of the flesh, sins of the heart, sins of the tongue are foolishness. And it's easy to prove this, right? Go watch daytime talk shows. I think they're still around. I don't, I don't, I don't have like a, like a regular... TV, like cable. I don't have that. I have Netflix, right? So, uh, not to sound like a millennial, okay? Um, but I remember, you know, Ricky Lake and uh, Jerry, not Jerry, 
Springer. Springer, yeah. I did the mayor of Cincinnati. Yeah, that put us on the map. Um, and uh, um, I'm sure Dr. Phil gets like this. I don't know. I'm sure Oprah, I, I, I just don't know, okay? And they'll have a guest on there. And the whole point of the show is to get the guests riled up, which then, or to get them to say something foolish, which then gets the crowd riled up, which will then get the guests riled up. This is the whole plan, right? And, and what you'll find, if, if you're being honest with yourself, this is foolish. And we love to watch it, right? You know, because it makes us feel better about ourselves, right? I will, I'll, um, um, now, we know that is nonsense. The problem is we so often fall prey of that in our private lives. I'll never forget when I was a teenager, uh, I came home, um, I think from church or something. Um, but it was, you know, but I had gone, gone out and probably went to Dairy Queen with friends or something. I don't but mom and dad had already been at the house for, for an hour or so. And I, I come in and we, we have a guest at the house. Now, you know as well as I do, no, no one's going to be at your house Sunday night at 8, 9 o'clock at night, right? You've got to work the next day. And you've been at church all day. You just don't want to see each other, right? I mean, be honest, okay? But one of our church members is at the house. Oh, that's odd. Sit in the living room, watching Sunday night football. It's really odd. And then he, we didn't have cell phones then, so he, he got mom and dad's uh, portable phone. You remember them. That's when you were, you were cool. And, and I heard him he's talking to our pastor, and he says, my wife and I are getting divorced. They're both members of the, of the church. We're getting divorced. And all, I don't remember everything he said except one line. He said, um, we started arguing, and I said some things I regretted. And ever since then, I thought, what a fool. What a fool. That's exactly what we do every day, isn't it? Every time we see the results of sin, we realize too late how foolish we really are. So, so be careful how you walk, he says. Not as the unwise. With, with the heart and the tongue and the flesh. But walk as the wise. Be thankful. Walk in love. Right? And, and, and you'll avoid this entire mess. This entire mess. Uh, and and that, that's, that's, that's what he does here. So verse 17, therefore, or making the best use of your time. Verse 17, therefore, remember when you see the word therefore, ask yourself what is therefore, therefore. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Did you see that? What is the will of God according to this? To walk in wisdom and not foolishness. <laughs> Isn't that obvious? Duh. <laughs> right? Isn't that obvious? Go back to Genesis 3. What is the will of God? To walk in wisdom and not foolishness. To eat of the fruit is foolishness. Why? Because God, God isn't saying there, you will never uh, eat of the fruit, but rather you're not ready for it yet. You're not ready for this tree of knowledge of good and evil. You're not ready for it yet. Genesis 3 is wisdom literature. It was treated that way by, by the Jews. And what happens is, is we bypass the will of God thinking we are wiser than he. We realize we're f- more foolish than we realize. And as we say, is, is, here's the will of God. Be wise. But what does wisdom look like? You're an imitator of God who walks in love as Christ loved you. And when you get that, you're going to bypass the sins of the flesh, sins of the heart, sins of the mouth. So, okay, with, with that said, he gets more practical in verses 18 to 21. So you see, he starts with his idea, and with each step, he gets more and more practical. 
So it's really just common sense. If, if you get the first point, be imitators of God, walk in love, everything else just sort of flows naturally. So verse 18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice, uh, not this, but that way of arguing. Um, and and so, so rather than to be overcome with the influence of a foreign substance, be influenced with the presence and the love of God. Doesn't that sound sort of obvious? There was someone I was counseling one time. The Lord really did good works in them, and I don't want to share who it was. And this person said, every night to go to sleep, I have to have a beer. I'm not interested in your thought about alcohol, because that's not the point. I asked, why must you have a beer to sleep? He thought his problem was physical. What he discovered was the problem was spiritual. The beer numbed the brain enough for him to go to sleep. He was unable to lay in his bed without a distraction to help him go to sleep. And if it wasn't a beer, it's his phone. It's a television show. It's something. What is it that can just numb the soul to sleep? You see that? If you are filled with the Spirit, you are filled with, the, with thanksgiving and love. Why? Because you're thankful for a God who loved you. Go to bed. Right? Just go to bed. The problem is, is, is the, here it's, it's alcohol, but, but we can throw in substance abuse, which is a major problem in the United States right now. Or sleeping pills is a major problem in the United States right now. And, and um, what you'll find is we, we, we have to get a foreign substance as a form of salvation. So, so, so I have a problem. This pill will fix it. This, this, this drink will fix it. This, this momentary uh, pleasure will fix it. This desire will fix it, at least enough for me to get through the day. So you're filled with something that will lead you to foolishness rather than something that will lead you to wisdom. So be spirit-filled rather than something else. Um, which, let me make a note there. Paul is not speaking of charismatic stupor there when he says spirit-filled. Um, I've had people say, well, well, that means before you go to bed and you speak in tongues. Like, okay, show me that in the Greek, okay? <laughs> or English, or even in the message, right? You're not going to find it. <laughs> was it? That's not our style? Is that what it was? That's great. That's great. I love that. Um, 19, so we're, so we're going to be filled with spirit. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord of your heart. In other words, be joyful. Be joyful. I mean, don't you think the world would be better if we all spoke to each other in Johnny Cash lyrics? <laughs> it could get dicey apart. Oh, fair enough, right? Sure beats what we're doing now. Of course, I'm being facetious with the Johnny Cash reference. Um, but, but I bet you've met someone who actually lives this way, like on a good day. Uh, my dad, um, if you hear him whistling a tune, something's about to be tearing apart torn apart, right? Man always tells the story that uh, she had a CD stuck in her old Dodge Stratus, Candy Apple and Dodge Stratus. And, and um, we hadn't been dating very long. And uh, of course, we knew, well, dad will fix it, right? He, he needs something to do, get him out of our hair. And, and you know, she's over thinking, well, this is going to cost thousands of dollars. You got to tear it and all this sort of stuff. And dad grabs a butter knife. 
And you know, you don't just go and grab a butter knife. You got to do the dude thing, the dad thing, where you're flipping the butter knife, right, as you're going, right? And he's whistling, you know? I don't know what he's whistling, but he really enjoyed the song. And two minutes later, here's your CD, right? And he's flipping the thing, and he puts it back in the drawer, and mom didn't like that. But, but you know, if, if you see someone, you know, whistle like that, it, it's, uh, uh, for one, it drives you crazy, right? Why are you happy you should be miserable like me, right? You, you, ever, you ever say, or not say it, but you ever think that about someone, right? But think about it. If, if, if we were so full of joy that we would speak to each other with the truth found in psalms, spiritual songs, and hymns, the world would be a better place. The world would be a much better place. So the psalms, spiritual songs, and, and hymns is a reflection of the heart. We walk around with joy. We greet each other. So we're thankful for each other. We're walking in love. Not with animosity or bitterness or envy or covetousness. Verse 20, we've already picked up on this. Giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see the theology there? So if, if, if you love God and you're imitators of him, you'll be thankful to him. And when you're thankful to God for everything, you're thankful to God for everyone in your life. Here's, here's, a real, here's a real test of where you are spiritually. Can you pray for everyone in your life? One of the things I've found working at the Capitol is when, when I asked uh, people around the state to sign up at pray122.org, which you can do now, um, or you can just follow me on Facebook or Twitter and I'll give it all the information to you, is I've had people say, I would love to be able to do that, but there are some elected officials I can't pray for. That's a spiritual problem. It's not a political problem. It's a spiritual problem that shows up politically. I mean, I, I th I've told you all the story before that um, I put on Twitter please, every day, please join me in praying for Senator so-and-so, um, a representative so-and-so, usually what it is. And one guy responded, well, I'm praying that we get recreational marijuana, whatever it was, you know. And I, <laughs> I thought, well, okay, I'm, I'm nonpartisan. I don't deal. It may have been medicinal marijuana. I don't know. I said, while you're doing that, can you pray for them and their families? Says, oh, yeah, I guess I could do that too. <laughs> you guess? You get? Did you see what happened there? <laughs> so driven by a political desire, you cannot genuinely love someone who God calls your neighbor. That's a problem. If you're thankful to God for everything, you'll be thankful for God for everyone. That will greatly affect how you treat people, even people who don't like you, and how you persevere through suffering. All right, All right. and then uh, finally, verse 21. Here it is. Submitting to one another out of reverence of Christ. Now, I want you to notice what Paul has done here, and you, and you may not have noticed it. You could take verses 1 and 2, skip all the way down to verse 21, and it makes complete sense. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ has loved you and be submissive to one another. Does that make sense? How does Paul define submit there? Imitating God in Christ who submitted his own will to that of the Father for our sake. So what does submission look like here? As Don said earlier, it is putting someone above yourself at the cost of yourself. That's submission. 
And it's rooted not in patriarchy, but in the gospel. This is what Christ has done. A male, by the way, I should point out. It's what Christ has done. And he did it for his bride, the church. Now you see where this is going? Verse 22, can I read it to you from the Greek? Wives, also your husbands. There's no verb in the Greek. Did you catch it? Let's read verse 21 again. Go down to verse 22. Submitting, now who is he speaking to here? Everyone in the church. And this concludes a very generic practical section, right? So, so we're, 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 here's the key. You're going to walk in Christ, which means love, right? And this is going to show up in other ways. You're, you're, you know, you're not going to do these things. So you're, you're not going to be a fool. You're going to be wise. This shows up in being spirit-filled, in being joyful, being thankful, and submitting. So submitting, this is for all Christians, submitting to one another, particularly within the church, out of reverence for Christ. So Christ who loved us upon the cross. So out of reverence of him, who has already uh, shown us what this means, we will submit to each other. We will put their needs above our own. Then verse 22, wives as to your husbands. No verb. So where then is the verb? It's bad English. It's not good Greek, but it's really good theology. The verb is missing. So if you take verse 22 and you take it very literally out of context, it just says wives to your husbands. You're thinking, well, I can make that up now, right? <laughs> you know, something's missing the manuscript. Whatever verb, what verb do I like, ladies, right? Right, uh, you know, and you can just make it up. But that's not how the flow of the argument goes. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, you do the same for your husbands. So what we've done in English, and I think rightly, but limitedly, if that's a word, is we took the previous verse verb and we applied it to verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. But what if we took every verb and the ones immediately there? Wives, be thankful in your submission to your husbands as to the Lord. Wives, be joyful for your husbands as you are to the Lord. Yeah. 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 The light and darkness thing. Light and darkness, foolish and, 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 and wise. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thinking. So you take what you're saying there. For wives to submit to your own husbands, wives to be thankful for your husbands, wives to be joyful with your husband, that is coming into the light, verse 13. So that, that's why I say, I think if you can get verse 20, the first 21 verses, everything that follows is this a natural uh, uh, fallout from everything else? So, but what we do in this text is we come and say, well, that sounds like patriarchy. I, I'm, I'm not going to go with it. And what you just did is you said, I will not imitate Christ, who submitted his will to that of the Father. It's thankful. It's joyful. 
spirit field. And then you could do the same thing going down to husbands. Which, by the way, with the wives, notice his, his reference to, to the Lord. That's exactly what he just did in verse 21. In reference to the Lord, wives, the same with your husband. Um, and then verse 23, husbands is the head of the wife, so on and so forth. Christ is the head of the church. But what did Christ do for the church as its head? He died for her. He loved her. He was thankful for her. Then he can say in verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Well, how was love defined in the text? Not with fickle emotion. That's how you and I oftentimes define it. Because that's the way it is in the movies. He's already defined love. If you go back to verse 2. Walk in love, husbands, right? Who, 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 as Christ loved you by dying upon the cross as a sweet fragrance. Notice that that sweet fragrance is that of a sacrifice that is, that is ascending unto the Lord who is pleased with you. That's how you're supposed to love, which makes sense because he just told wives that the, as Christ is the head of the church, so, so, so the husband is. How does Christ demonstrate his headship? Not with power and an iron fist, but with submissive sacrificial love that serves her. It's so obvious, and it's beautiful if we practice it. Look, at the end of the day, you have a husband and a wife. If, if, if I can solve all your problems right here, can you mind if I, mind if I fix all your marriage problems here? Here we go, okay? What you'll find is one will withhold from the other, so the other punishes the other. Okay? That's what happens. And what you end, what ends up happening is you both are losers now. Because you think if I punish the other, that'll solve the problem. But it only makes the problem worse. Because then, then they think, well, they withheld this, so now I'm going to double down what I've been withholding. And so you just get loser mentality. But if the response is, I will give at all cost for the sake of the one I love, and they are both are saying that, both are giving without demanding. So instead of being entitled to what the other has, we give out of love and sacrifice what it is that they need. So whenever I do marriage counseling, we go through five love languages or, or we'll do the five needs of men and women, right? And I say, if you would just meet these needs or have your spouse lay out, here's top five sort of thing. And there's helpful ways to do that. And you say, my focus is these five right here at whatever cost. And if you both commit to that, it will solve 90% of, of your marital problems. Solve 90% of them. That's what Paul says here. Because that's what Christ has done. So... So what are we to do as a church is we are to be submissive to our head who has loved us enough that he has died for us. And what else would you expect of a loving Savior who is the head? So I don't think verse 22 and following about husbands and wives and then children and slaves are as controversial as we make them. And the reason they're controversial is because we skipped the first 21 verses. Get those right. Everything else seems like common sense. Anything else I miss? Danny, anything I miss? Oh, I did? Tell me. <laughs> yeah, 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 go ahead. <laughs> Bible is clear that you and I are slaves. 
we are either slaves to the flesh and sin or we are slaves to a redeemer. One sets us free, the other holds us in bondage. That actually was our Bible study in James 4 today at the Capitol. Um, so we were either be children of light, children of darkness, which y'all have been talked about. But, but you can choose right now which slave you want to be. Both will require submission, but one will produce joy and thanksgiving. This is good stuff. Good stuff. All right. How about we, we call it a night there?